Now, if you've read ahead, and I always suggest you do, you're probably going, this is such a technical text. Yes, it is. But let's pray. We're going to dig right in. We'll put a little context to it and then jump in. You'll see that there are six primary subjects in our, in God willing, we'll take on two chapters and have communion and get you out of here before quarter to three. We'll see how that works. Pray with me. Lord God, you promised that your word is active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the intent and thoughts of our heart. So, Lord, do that today. Bring clarity. By the power of your Holy Spirit, come upon me to speak through me what I cannot humanly do, Lord. You can speak to every one of us, be it, Lord, English is our first, second, or fifteenth language. Lord, be it, Lord, that we have all kinds of understanding about your, your texts, Lord, your Bible, or we have no understanding, Lord, whether the people that came in today came in breathing hallelujahs or those that came in Lord just breathing sighs of desperation God you know how to speak to every one of us today and I thank you I thank you for the privilege Lord of being able to come here to this amazing beautiful flock that you are assembling Lord here in London to be able to celebrate our king to be able to surrender to our living God and to be able to hope in the almighty and so Lord please speak life Speak encouragement. Speak salvation today. And Lord, I just pray that you would just, just do, what, do here what, what no human being can do. Heal. Transform. Perform the therapy necessary. Do everything necessary, Lord, to make this amazing. And may this be the most fun we've ever had in church. May we be the most impacted, most profoundly spoken to. That we would be, as we prepare to approach other technical texts, Lord, that we would be all the more excited about them. And so, Lord, I just thank you and I, I just praise you. So, Lord, give us supernatural understanding. Open our minds, our hearts, our ears. <clears throat> Let the time be well spent. Let it not seem long, but perfect, Lord. Speak every word you want and no other. So, Lord, I commit this to you now and I trust you in Jesus' name. Amen would say today, I said, would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Always. Let's put things into context. In chapter 18, if you remember, we were at a place called Rephidim. Rephidim, remember, means resting place or relaxing. And it was there that we were attacked. It was there, it's been, it was there that Jethro shows up and drops off Moses' wife and kids. And it is there then, as Jethro, his father-in-law, looks at Moses working from just beginning to end, that he just sees the guy and he says, in loose paraphrase, you're going to work yourself to death. Suggest you delegate. Hand over some of this. Let other people handle some of those basic problems and you can handle the big issues. You can take them to the Lord. Now that's going to come into play in where we're at today. That was chapter 18. But chapter 19, we were approached then with the idea that Moses has gone up and down the mountain three times. And in those three times that he's gone up and down the mountain, I remind you, Moses is 80 years old. And in this 80-year-old man goes up the first time and God says, Can I remind you how I delivered you out of the land of slavery, out of the hand of the enemy? And as I've delivered you out of that, 
I'd like to throw a proposition before you. If you're willing to obey my voice, and if you're willing to keep my commands, my covenant, well, then I will actually then make you a prized priest for purpose. So Moses goes down and tells the people. God's asking if you're willing to follow, if you're willing to listen, obey, if you're willing to keep, then God's willing to prize you and give you purpose. The people say, whatever the Lord says, we'll do. And of course, we, the reader, being a little bit more aware of what's going to happen, go, (laughs) right. So Moses goes back up and he tells God. And God says, now that we've dealt with this proposition, let's deal with our preparation. So he heads back down and says, now it's time to prepare. Get yourself ready because the Lord's going to show up in a very powerful way and I want you ready for it. Let's consecrate ourselves. People say, sure. So off they go, cleaning themselves up, preparing themselves. And then Moses heads up the mountain again and God says, go down and tell them, tell them, don't you dare touch the mountain. And Moses is like, we've already worked this out. And God says, go. He knows that just because God says don't do it doesn't mean people won't do it. That's obvious. So Moses has made his way down the hill the third time. And it's then that God speaks the Ten Commandments. While Moses is down at the bottom of the hill with all of the other people to hear, so the entire congregation of Israel hears God speak the Ten Commandments while Moses is down there with him. And then once God clears that, and that's in chapter 21 through 7, then God says, now come on up, let's talk. And as he goes up, the first issue he addresses is, let's talk about making an altar. You see, I know that if I'm going to lay out the law for you, one thing I'm sure of is you're not going to keep it. So there's going to need to be sacrifice. But that sacrifice can't be on the top of the hill because religion is never about man climbing to God. It is about God descending to man to die, to sacrifice for your innocence. So Moses is up on the mountain. And that's where we're at at the moment. But I want to remind you, while Moses is up on the mountain, <coughs> excuse me, and by the way, for what it's worth, he will be there until chapter 24, verse 3. <coughs> excuse me, where he'll go back down the mountain and tell the people these particular statutes. And then God will call him up at the end of that chapter. And as he calls him up at the end of the chapter, Moses will be there for 40 days with the Lord. Now, now get this with me. While Moses is up on the hill, who's actually taking care of things down there? Well, you have Aaron, Moses' brother, who's his elder. He's 83. But I want to remind you, Moses has already delegated a group of elders to help handle the problems. Are you with me on that? Well, the question is, well, what do you have to work by? And what we have in these couple chapters, really, if you think about it, is God giving the standards that are necessary to their judicial system so that when people have to bring a court case, so to speak, they have something to work from. And so that's really what we have here. And it's really developing the Ten Commandments, but just in a more practical sense. What's the most amazing here is the things that God has to address. And can I just say this? That by the time we get to the end of chapter 22, what we'll see is God says, because I want you holy unto me. That's what God wants here. God's looking for a group of people. Now understand, God didn't say, I'm looking for a group of people that will just be nice, be pious, behave that won't sleep around, that won't do drugs, that won't get pregnant, that won't be doing things that cause rumors. But to be honest, what God says is, I want you holy, and this is what God's view of holiness is, holiness unto, not holiness from. When we think of holiness, we tend to think of holiness from the standpoint that I stay away from that. 
That's what makes me holy. I, I don't watch rated R movies, and I don't go and get drunk, and I stay out of that club. And, I, and that's like holiness from, but scripturally, holiness is holiness unto God. So can I just say that when God starts laying out laws here, that he's got four basic purposes for them. The H, by the way, is our health. And what we'll find is a lot of things that God lays out are quite simply for our health. Now please understand that. Because for instance, when the Black Plague hit this area here and people were dropping like flies, the only people who weren't dying were the Jewish people. And as a result of that, many of the people believed that the Jewish people were committing some form of sorcery to kill everyone. When the truth be told, it just says in Scripture, if you touch something dead, go wash. And that was a bit revolutionary to everyone else. But because they washed, they were actually washing off the very mites that lived on rats that carried the plague in the first place. It's for your health. And that's going to be one of the things we're going to see as he plays into this. Now what are you going to see in every one of the things in regards to the fact that he wants to be their only God, that he wants their love completely, And he wants them to separate so that we can say, you are my only God. And they don't want us being like the place that we're leaving. And he doesn't want us to be like the place we're moving into. So the place we left was Egypt. It was a land of slavery. And he says, I don't want you being like that anymore. You're not a slave anymore to that. But the place you're going into, too, the place I'm sending you in as soldiers, well, that place is pretty messed up, too. So I don't want you blending in with that culture either. So understand, when God starts laying out the law, he wants you healthy, he wants, in that sense, and he wants you not acting like the bondage you came from and not acting like the world that's eroding in front of you either. But he wants to be your only one. Now, now with that in mind, please follow me in this. Now we're going to go through the text. It'll be relatively quick. But please follow me in this. What I want to find in this, and Bruno, just so you know, <coughs> I would call it finding Jesus in the judgments. He already called the Ten the Ten Commandments, but notice in 21 verse 1 it says, now these are the judgments. Now notice the difference in the wording. Now in in Psalm 19 verse 9, it tells us, by the way, when it starts to go through the different things, it talks about the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're the laws, the testimonies, the statutes, the commandments, the fear of the Lord, and the judgments are all very different and distinct things, at least according to Psalm 19. Here God starts saying, let me lay out my judgments for you. And the reason is because you have judges down there. They're going to be judging, and as they have to judge, they need something to to judge from, so I'm going to help them with it. There'll be six basic areas in these two chapters. And the first of them, and I love where God starts. He doesn't start with the king. He doesn't start with the celebrity. He doesn't start with the wealthy. He starts with the slave. And look at verse 21, chapter 21, verse 1 with me. These are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and on the seventh he shall go free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then he shall, his wife shall go out with him. But if his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and they shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, plainly says, by the way, without coercion, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. It's like tagging cattle. And he shall serve him forever. 
And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who was betrothed her to himself, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to the foreign people since she has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or her marriage rights. If, she does not, if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Now, let me put it in the simplest sense, our first 11 verses. You ready? If you sell yourself because you owe. Now, we're not talking about prostitution. Because even today, when you work, you don't make your own hours unless you work for yourself. You have a boss who, in essence, in some ways, sort of owns you, whether you like it or not. You can only work six years. That's it. And then you leave with what you came in with. But if you are bound by love, and you think, I would rather serve here for the rest of my life than go free, then you can do so. A slave that marries, a slave bride that marries, I'm sorry, this way, a slave that's a bride either marries or can be redeemed. If she's to marry the son, then you have to treat her like a daughter. That's just the simplest sense of it all. But follow me in this. Now, some of you are the kind that you're kind of like Camdonian, and so you would pierce things just for fun. I'm not a real piercing kind of guy, although I will say my ears pierced, and now you know why, sincerely. Before I knew Christ, I never had a pierced anything, at least on purpose. But <clears throat> the, when I gave my life to Christ, and the first time I heard about this particular term, it was the first time that I went, wow, well, that's cool, let me do that. I'm just, I'm just kind of a literalist, I guess. But I'd like you to follow me on this for a moment. In this, the idea, first of all, is that we're leaving a culture, by the way, where if you were called a slave, you had no rights. Now, please understand, by the time we're done with these two chapters, God makes clear kidnapping is a capital offense. So what we know as slavery is not what they knew as slavery. What they knew as slavery was work. Now, for some of you, you work in a place where you're like, yeah, it's slavery still. But, I mean, not this idea of going somewhere, taking somebody out of their place, kidnapping them, that's illegal, and God would actually have you killed for that. So understand that. But you owed someone something. Let's say Amina's in debt. Now, by the way, if Amina, let's just say, owed Dash money, she doesn't have to necessarily sell her service to Dash. She could go shopping for a master. And here's the best part you would be very wise to pick the right master, wouldn't you? Some masters you kind of know have a reputation for beating. I'd stay out of that one. And you know, you know that because the same thing happens. It started in school. Do you guys remember this? When you were in school and you got to that place where you could pick your classes and you started asking around, so how was that teacher? He's horrible. Okay, I'll take that teacher for it. Because you kind of knew if I could pick one teacher to teach that class, I'll take the nicer one. And then you're like, well, if I was going to work, would I work for that boss or that boss? Well, that boss is rotten. The last thing I want to do is work for him. Well, that's kind of the idea. Well, which boss would you think would be the best one? My guess is the one that had the most bond servants. Wouldn't that make sense? Now, listen what a bond servant is. A bond servant is somebody that owed money, so he put himself into service. He, in other words, I mean, we all own land. So since we all were given land, is we'll all be given land when we get into the land, promise that. We actually could live off of our land. But if for whatever reason, we don't. Which, by the way, according to Scripture, was out of our disobedience that God didn't provide the rain. Well, now we find ourselves working. And now we have to put ourselves in service to someone else. 
So as we put ourselves in this service to someone else, we could pick someone and go, man, you know what? You'll never have to serve a bad boss forever. You get six years and you're out. But you could also pick a boss if you found one that you're like, you know what? This is beautiful. I would rather be this than anything for the rest of my life. Here's the scary thing. Whether you know it or not, we're all in a place where we're in debt. And because we're all in debt spiritually, you're going to serve someone. So can I just challenge you to say, be wise and careful what master you choose. But I can tell you this. Paul in Romans 1.1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now you know where that came from. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. James in James 1.1 says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, in Jude 1.1, since there's only one chapter, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And I realize that basically just about every guy that you find that writes a book in the New Testament is going to tell you, I am so happy to serve this master. Well, there were other masters. Jesus, by the way, tells us that whoever commits sin is a slave to it. That's John 8, 34. The moment you start jumping into the pool of sin, you've submitted yourself to a very horrible, evil taskmaster. It's kind of like a credit card, which is the reason you used it is you didn't have enough income in the first place. So the problem is, it's like a slippery slope, right? Let's say you, you owed 100 pounds, but you didn't make it. So you actually put it on your card, but now you owe 115 pounds. You couldn't pay 100. How are you going to pay 115? You get it? And that problem is, is that's what happens with sin. Is you kind of feel like, and, and the sin is just like that. It works off credit. You get all the goods up front, and you spend the rest of your life paying for it. And that's a master you can choose. The crazy thing is, the one master you may think you can choose is yourself, but scripturally, there is no such thing. You've either surrendered to the one who seeks to destroy you, or to the living God who loves you, but that's your choice. And when you seek to serve yourself, what will happen is you'll get into the bottle, you'll get into sex, you'll get into gambling, you'll get into relationships, you'll get into something that starts to destroy you, because in the end of it all, you realize, wow, if I was really the boss, why do I make these choices? But you can also be a bondservant and submit yourself to the one who deserves it. Now listen, it isn't just that we have Paul as an example, James and Simon Peter and Jude, but in Philippians 2, it says, Let your mind be like Christ's, who in the very nature of God didn't consider equality with God robbery, but instead made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a bondservant. Jesus took the form of this. And I remind you, it says, he chooses to serve forever. And God has been establishing this all the way back in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Exodus 21, as he tells us what a bondservant is. So praise God we have this text. Now in it, Excuse me, there's another interesting thing if you look at verse 8. Verse 9 or verse 7 says, If a man sells his daughter and you think, whoa, 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 please understand 
Every daughter that was betrothed to be married was sold. Now, the idea is quite simple. Since we have a mom here, this is the way it works. Let's just say that there's some man and he's like Mr. Sugar. And he's really got it bad for blasmin, hypothetically. And as he does, he's going to go and speak to Blasmin's parents, her mother, and say, how much for the little girl? And she's like, no way you touch my little girl. I'll whop you upside the head to my little girl. Well, sooner or later, that deal gets worked out. But understand, he can't marry her until that amount is paid to mom or to dad or to the parents. Now, why? You think of it as alimony in advance. If by any reason he does not fulfill his husband duties, she is taken care of for the rest of her life. Do you know that was kind of the original idea of the engagement ring? That's why they cost so much, guys. So that if you really were the jerk that you probably are without Christ, that you could sell it and at least live off of it for a period of time? Well, that was the idea. So it isn't like you're selling her like merchandise. But it is in the sense that you are promising that. But here's the interesting thing. If a man then gets into that agreement, the price has been paid. She comes in and he's done it deceitfully. He's done it actually as a lie because he sits on a throne of lies. Well, he's got two options. One is that he actually takes care of her and marries her. The other is that she can be redeemed. She can be bought back. Interesting, because he's already given the price. Who can buy her back? Well, mom can, because she's got the money. But he's already forfeited that. So do you know who has the redeemer? Someone else who would love her. Can I just say that's what happened to you, my friends? That you were in bondage, you were in debt, and you were sold to an evil taskmaster who really didn't want you for love, wanted you to torture you, but someone loved you so much that they paid your price so you could be theirs. Oh, by the time we get to Ruth, that becomes crystal clear. And can I say... According to the Corinthian letters, it says, you were bought with a price. You know, the most amazing thing is, if God has redeemed you so much as to pay his son to redeem you, how ridiculous is it that we act and go, well, I'm a free agent, I can do what I want. Funny, not in this law you aren't. You've been redeemed. Well, you could go back to that horrible taskmaster, but don't forget the bondage you were in when you were there. So that's our first of our six. Let's move on. <coughs> Excuse me. And by the way, for what it's worth, the word for redeemed, para means to sever, to ransom, and to release. I love that. For him to buy back Blasman, he is going to sever her bondage. He is going to pay her ransom, and then he's going to see her released. Now God moves from that area, notice that's the first, to the area of violence, because God just happens to know that all y'all violent. Verse 12. He who strikes a man and dies shall surely be put to death. And you kind of go, well, wait a minute, didn't God say thou shalt not kill? No, what God said is thou shalt not murder. And now God's showing you what murder looks like. 
That's what murder looks like. However, if he does not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where you may flee. If a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor, I will kill him, I'm sorry, to kill him by treachery. You shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He, and here it is. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, if he is found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. By the way, that will take care of a lot of the juvenile delinquency we have. If men contend with one another, by the way, it does require for parents to actually be parents. That's part of it, though. If men contend with one another and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks from outside with his staff and who struck him shall be acquitted, he shall only pay for his loss of his time and he shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. If a man beats his female or male or female servant with a rod and he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains Alive a day or two, he shall not be punished for his property. If men fight and they hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely and yet no harm follows, well, he shall surely be punished anyways, according to the woman's husband imposes on him. Can you imagine what a man's going to say? You hit his pregnant wife? I bet it's probably not going to be cheap. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, it shall, he shall give Life for life. Did you notice there that God called an unborn child a life? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. (coughs) If a man strikes the eye of a female, male or female servant, and destroys it, then he shall go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out his tooth for the sake of a male or female servant, then he shall go free for the sake of the tooth. So you've got this tough boss, and wouldn't you just knock out a tooth and just wait? And then let him hit you and then spit out your tooth. I'm free. Let me sum this up. Premeditated murder is a capital offense. Incidental murder, there is a place you can run to that is called a place of refuge. He who hits or curses his mom or dad or kidnaps, it's a capital offense. If a fight, in a fight you disable someone, you pay the price. For as long as it takes. If that guy's going to spend the rest of his life, you pay for it. If he finally gets up, you pay for all his hospital bills, his time off. He doesn't do it by insurance. You pay for it. You pay all rehab costs. If you hit someone pregnant, it's part for part. And slaves are set free at abuse. That's our second area. Now notice, by the way, God goes back to the area of slavery at this. And he will, again, in the idea of this person who's considered the lowest among the social strata. But the point that I want to bring out more than anything is this verse 13. Now, some of you who have ever been around Middle Eastern culture kind of know about things called honor killings or the Avenger. Now, I'm not talking about a guy that's dressed like Captain America or the Hulk. An Avenger is actually somebody that, <coughs> excuse me, somebody that, is, that restores the honor of someone that's been hurt. So the idea is kind of simple. Ellie's been killed by someone. Ellie's big brother then comes over and tries to find out who killed her and kills him in response. Now, needless to say, that's how things like Romeo and Juliet begin. I mean, those are the kind of, that's the idea there. Now, ultimately, though, if it's premeditated, the law is taken care of. And I remind you, these are going to be handed down to judges so that they have to go, well, here it is. It's in the law. It's a capital offense. But he goes, on the other side of that, if it was something you didn't intend to do, 
When you guys were fighting, you were obviously enemies, but you didn't really mean to kill him. You didn't know what you were doing. Well, then you could run to a place of refuge. And if you ran to a place of refuge, and by the way, that's exactly what he calls them, is cities of refuge. Numbers chapter 35 calls them cities of refuge. And he actually lists out six of them, Kadesh, Shechem, Kerf, Arba, Bitzer, Ramot, and Golan. What's interesting is it makes me understand a little bit better why Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know now what they do. This wasn't as premeditated as it would have been. Jesus is seeking to classify it. But understand, if they were then guilty even of manslaughter, they had to run to a place to avoid the refuge of the, or sorry, to avoid the avenger. And the place they'd run to was the city of refuge. Interesting. Because in Psalm 28.8 it says that the Lord is their strength and he's the saving refuge of his anointed. In Psalm 31.2 it says, Bow down your ear to me, deliver me speedily, be my rock of refuge, fortress of defense, save me. In Psalm 91.2 it says, I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. In Psalm 94.22 it says, But the Lord has been my defense and my God the rock and my refuge. And I look at that and I can't help but think that's the way it works. See, what happened is, is if you had actually killed somebody but didn't really intend to, you could run to this place and be safe, but you needed to be there as long as the high priest lived. And can I just say, I'm guilty of killing the Son of God. It is my sin, it is my evil that Christ died on the cross for. So when someone said, who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? I said, I did. That's who did. Because it was my sin and his love for me that put him there. But because he put me there in that place where he loved me so much, I could run to him and be safe. And I call on that name, the only name given among men in heaven and earth or below, which all men must be saved. The name Jesus Christ. And I run to him and I stay there. And he's my refuge. And God had already prepared me for that here in Exodus 21. He says, look at, you need to recognize. And Jesus will lift it up and say, look at, let's just get right to it. In the end of it all, if you've hated somebody without cause, you've planted the seeds of murder in your own heart, and you know it. You may not kill them on the outside, but you've killed them in your heart, and you know it. Interesting, because when we get to the end of this, he says, it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And you're going, oh, wait a minute, I've heard that before. What's interesting is, is they made this now a requirement instead of what it was here, which was a limit. The idea wasn't if someone knocked out your tooth, you were required to knock out their tooth. The idea is if someone knocked out your tooth, you were not allowed to break their jaw. But boys, you know this, right? Two guys are sitting there, they're like 13, and one turns around and goes... The other guy is not going to respond with the same amount of pressure. He goes... <laughs> the guy goes... Oh, yeah. <laughs> And after three minutes, someone's like, bam, bam. And they're like, I don't, well, he did it first. Well, he did this. It always seems like we have to up one. And you know, can I just say, what God's saying is, you can't do that. I'm setting a limit. That's the idea here. And this is what happens with couples. Some guy says something because he's on the flesh, so he goes, nah, 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 nah. And so what happens is the other person turns around and goes, oh, yeah, well, wah, 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 wah. 
And he goes, oh man, well, who jumped on the broom this morning? And the next thing you know, you've got like the Hulk and Griselda, the bad witch, sitting in the same room. And it all started with somebody saying something stupid. So someone goes, yeah, well, eye for an eye. In other words, well, look it. If someone poked out your eye, don't make them blind. They gave me a little bruise, so I broke their arm. God says, that's... And again, I remind you, the judges are holding this and going, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Do you get it? And Jesus says this. Jesus banks on this, and he says in Matthew chapter 5, 38, you've heard that it's been said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Jesus says, let's go beyond that. Some guy smacks you on one side, off from the other, and you go, ha, ha, what? Well, then I'll be a doormat. No, you'll be a floor. People are going to walk on me. Yep, they will. Does God really want that? He wants the power to be able to say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It isn't that, I mean, the bottom line in it is, is what I really want is for that person to stop doing that. And my first thought is, well, if you kill them, they'll stop. God's like, well, let's kill the old man. You'd send someone to hell. I, on the other hand, would actually let the old man die. So you'd be someone new. Number three, then God deals with animals. Now, we don't necessarily, any of you have any ox that are famous for goring here? Okay, well, <clears throat> well, you may feel like you're off the hook, but you might have a dog, and I've seen a couple of these lately. Follow me on it, verse 28 to the end of the chapter. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned. Its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. He won't be called guilty for it. But if the ox tended to thrust with his horns in times past, it has been known to his owner, he has not kept it confined so that it killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and the owner shall be put to death as well. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay it to redeem his life. Whatever is imposed on him. No, whatever is gored a son, gored a daughter, according to the judgment, it shall be done to him. Notice the word judgment again. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give his master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. <coughs> Excuse me. If a man opens a pit, if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, <coughs> but the dead animal shall be his. Congratulations, you just bought the animal that fell in your pit. If the one man's ox hurts another so it dies, then they'll sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Barbecue for both of them. If it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past, and its owner was kept it, had kept it, sorry, has not kept it confined, then he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. Now, Here's the third of our six. Now, follow me on this. And again, forgive me, this is a bit technical. We're aware of that. But you know what? There are some important things. And in each of these, we see Jesus. You go, really? We've got oxes here. Oxen. And they're goring each other. How in the world am I going to find Jesus in this? Well, first of all, here's the sum. If you have a killer ox, he's to be stoned but not eaten. But if that killer ox has a rep for it, well, then the ox and the owner get killed. Or you can pay for it if you can set a price instead. If a servant dies... You have to pay for him. If the pit is a killer, well, then you buy the animal you killed. If the ox killed another ox, well, then you sell the living and you split both. But if it's a reputation for being the bad ox, then you trade the living for the dead. There's your idea. First of all, you're aware of the fact then that the owner of an animal is responsible for the animal. You're aware of that. 
especially if you know the animal's rotten. But I love Chewy the pit bull. Okay, so we call him Chewy because he gnaws on every human being that walks by. Sooner or later, Chewy is going to have to go by, or you're going to be in trouble. That God takes very seriously the fact that people are more important than animals. He doesn't say animals aren't important, notice. But people will always be more important. I'll try to explain that to some groups that are out there right now that would rather kill you than the animal. But God didn't create the animals to have a personal relationship with them, but he did create you for that. Jesus didn't die for the woodchuck or the hedgehog, as cute as they might be. He died for you. And he'd rather die than live without you. But what's interesting is right in the middle of this, this strange verse 32, if the ox gores a male or a female servant, he pierces him. Then he shall give to the master 30 shekels of silver. Now, why is that so interesting? Well, because according to Zechariah 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 12, it says, give me the wages and the refrain. So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver, for which then he says, throw it and make it a potter's field. In Matthew chapter 26, the animal of work, the one who bore the load, was pierced. He was pierced, and for it they got 30 pieces of silver. Interesting, Zechariah 13.6 says, One will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And he says, Well, these are the ones that I received in the house of my friends. In Zechariah 12.10 it says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. In Psalm 22, verse 16, it says that they've pierced my hands and my feet, written 1,000 years before Jesus came to earth. And I look at all of this and put it all together. What you have is quite simple. God says that if, a, if an animal kills another, you're responsible. If the animal is known for killing and it kills, well, you're going to stand guilty for it. And this is interesting because you're kind of like, well, you know, no, no, it's not really me. It's just, you know, it's just my lifestyle. It's my whatever. Look, if you know it's a killer, you're responsible for it. And if you know your sin's a killer and you know your selfishness is a killer and you know your self-centeredness is a killer, well, then you better deal and buck up with it because you're going to, be, you're going to stand accountable for it. But my Savior in love for you, what's the price of Here's the difference. You want to hear something really ridiculous in the market of eternity? Jesus in the sight of man was worth the price of a gored ox. That's what, I'm sorry, in this case, he was worth the price of a gored slave. That's what he was worth. You are so valuable that you were worth everything of the richest person in all of eternity. Is that crazy? You are worth everything, and your Redeemer was worth the price of a gored slave. That's amazing. Next chapter. Move with me, will you? Here we go. Chapter 22. <clears throat> now we deal with thievery. For man, and by the way, this is how thievery should be dealt with. This would be so awesome. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, slaughters it and sells it, he shall restore it, five oxen to the ox, four sheep to the sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there will be no guilt for his bloodshed. But if the sun is risen on him, then there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. There you go. He becomes a slave. If the theft is 
the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it be an ox, donkey, or sheep, he will restore double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets his animals loose, feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches the thorns, so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire will surely make restitution. Or, to sum up, a thief that steals pays five times the amount if it's an ox, four times the amount if it's a sheep. If it's a burglary and you kill him at night, you're safe. If it's during the day, you catch him and he pays you twice as much. On the other side of it, if your animals graze on another land, you have to give them the best of yours. If there's a fire and it gets out of control, you pay for damages. It's that simple. But follow me in this. I think it's an interesting thing because God actually plays into this too. Would this be great if this is the way thievery was handled today? Poor Diana is walking down the street and some guy mugs her. And as he mugs her, theoretically, I even my end, I mean, my end. And, and so she gets mugged and the guy that steals, he steals her oyster card. He steals, you know, she's got 60 pounds in her pocket. You know, she's got one of those like things she bought in Canada. It's like a little mirror and about 40 pounds worth of makeup. Not weight, but the price. And so they sum all of that up, and then they catch the thief. Now today, we're really busy protecting the, the perpetrator. Have you noticed that? We want to make sure that that guy has rights. But in those days, this was what would happen. You'd say, well, first of all, you need to pay her back four times what you took. And I would have thought, getting stolen from was the best thing that happened to me today. <laughs> you wouldn't feel as much like a victim, would you? And so he's like, oh, I'm really sorry, but here's a Kiko card for your, you know, for all of your, you know, cosmetics. Here's a new purse, you know, or at least a gift certificate for that as well. Here's an Oyster card with, you know, an annual pass for the year. I mean, and it's like, and you think, well, okay, that wasn't as bad as it could have been. Well, what if he says, I can't afford it? Then my aunt says, well, y'all work for me now. <laughs> But you have responsibilities to slaves, too. Now, follow me on that. Because let me tell you a couple of cases that I've heard in the last five years in America. Now, you can decide what the, how that applies here. There was a man, and he was crawling on a roof because he was going to break into the house. And the skylight caved in, and he fell, and he broke his leg. He sued them for a half a million dollars and won the case because there was no sign on the roof that said, Warning, if you're going to break into my house, watch out. The skylight might cave in on you. Oh, there's a better one. There is a man who robbed a bank. And as he robbed a bank, they had him put the money in the bag, and he put the bag down the front of his trousers. Well, you may be aware of the fact that in America, the bags are exploding bags. So you ain't getting far with it. And once it explodes, you ain't getting anywhere with it. <coughs> so the man starts running out, and boom! Life has changed. And he sued, because there was not a warning on the bag. And won. The problem is, in both cases, what about the poor person that was sleeping at night when the guy came in through the window? Now, according to this scripture, it says, if that guy would have fallen in and you beat him to death, you'd be okay with it because it was nighttime. You're not going to spend a lot of time, excuse me, are you armed? Are you dangerous? I just want to find out. Bam! We're done. Now, you don't kill people for fun. You don't lock someone behind a bathroom door and shoot at them. The idea is quite simple. God, should, God has a very great concern for the victim. And he wants the victim to actually be blessed, if possible. That's the idea here. 
Now, wouldn't that be great if, he's, if Moses is going to hand that to 70 elders and go, all right, you guys, this is what you're going to judge from. You really don't want to get caught stealing. And that's a really great deterrent. Because, and by the way, it says, don't despise a thief who steals to eat bread. But if he's caught, he's still going to have to pay back. Now, interesting, for that sheep, look on the text. How, what fold is it? How many do you have to pay for? If you steal one, four. Don't miss that. And the reason I say that is, is because when David is, remember he has had the situation with Bathsheba, King David. And then the prophet Nathan comes to him. He says, let me tell you a little story. There was this guy and he had all these sheep. Lots and lots of sheep. Oh, it was such a great thing. But this guy that lived next to him had one little sheepy. It was his pet. Fluffy. And this guy had a guest come over and he's like, I'm hungry for lamb chops. And he went and he killed that lamb. David erupts. And he goes, what? That guy should pay fourfold and die. And then he goes, you know, that story was a set, that was a setup. That's what you did with that man's wife. But because I love you, I'm not going to kill you, but you are going to pay fourfold. Hmm. So another story, and it takes us right to Jesus, and it makes more sense when we know this text, by the way, for what it's worth. And that particular text is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, there was a chief tax collector. A wee little man, was he? What's his name? A wee little man? Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Ha! And, and this little man climbs up the sycamore tree. And this man gives his life to Christ. And when he does, listen to what he says. He says, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now where did he get that from? Exodus 22. And also we go, oh, well I guess that is relative. Second of the, of the, here we go. <coughs> Verse 7. <clears throat> if a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it's stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief is found, he'll pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand to his neighbor's good. Now, if there's any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, donkey, sheep, or clothing, or any kind of lost thing in which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges. And whomever the judges condemn shall pay double for the neighbor. If you accuse, by the way, someone falsely, then the, the, the punishment comes upon you. That's the idea. If a man delivers his, to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, or a sheep, or if any animal to keep, and it dies, or is hurt, or driven away, but no one sees it, an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand to his neighbor's goods. And the owner of it shall accept that, he shall not make it good. But if in fact it was stolen from him, so he shall make restitution for it by the owner. If it's torn to pieces by a beast, then it shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good of what was torn. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it comes injured or dies, the owner not being with it, well then he shall surely make good of it. But if the owner was with it, he shall not make it good. It was his hire and came for its hire. Now, here's the simple. Let me sum up. In the first case, it's watch my stuff. Hey, Marcia, watch my stuff. I come back for it. It's gone. It's stolen. The thief is caught. The thief pays twofold. If there's no thief, we go to the judges and we decide whether or not you actually took my stuff, sold my stuff, lost my stuff. In the second case, Marcia comes to me and says, can I borrow your stuff? And I say, sure, Marcia, go ahead. But if it breaks or it dies, she has to make good of it. If I wasn't there. But if I was there and it breaks or it dies, well, then she doesn't have to make good of it because I was there, I could have stopped it. That's the simplest point of it. The interesting thing is who they have to go to. The word judges here. Now, it may not seem like an important thing to you, but the word judges here is the word 
Elohim. Is that a weird thing? Now, the words, by the way, used throughout this whole text in Exodus 21.6, in Exodus 21.22, and then here as well. And I think it's really interesting because God calls these people Elohim. Well, isn't that the word for God? It's exactly, and the reason is that these people actually have the authority over to see whether a man lives or dies. And because of that, God wants you to see how important that is. What's interesting is, as a result of that, listen to what happens in Psalm 82. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. What gods are they? They're actually the people here that have now taken that position and are happy to actually decide whether a man lives or dies. And he says this, How long will you judge unjustly? Do you see who he's talking? He's talking to those that are calling themselves these gods. And show partiality to the wicked. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them by the hand of the wicked. They don't know. They don't understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. And yet I said, you're gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. But you will die like men. And fall like one of the princes. Now understand, this is the idea. It goes, can you guys sit up in the place that only God really has? The place to decide whether a man lives or dies. And you're happy to do that. And even though you're happy to do that, you're not taken care of. You're not there for the reason I put you there. I put you there to take care of the poor and the widow and the needy. The people, by the way, who need help to stay alive. And you're busy actually putting other people to death that aren't even guilty. Do you get that? Well, if you get that, then you can understand a text that might be hard to understand in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, Jesus says this, after he had healed a man born blind. Many good works I have shown you from my Father. Which of these do you seek to stone me? And they see the Jews answered him, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because you claim as a man being claimed to be God. Well, Jesus said, Isn't it written in the law? I said, You're God's. And you kind of go, whoa, that's such a weird text. Not if you understand this. He's going, look at you guys. You guys are so happy to actually decide whether a man lives or dies, but you won't take the responsibility of giving life. You're so busy issuing death, you're not busy trying to issue life. And he goes, you guys are willing to take that position. You have a problem with me because I said he was, I'm his son? And they're standing in the face, they're staring in the face of God who loves the lost and the prostitute and the drug addict and the weak, and the stumbling. And they're so busy condemning everyone, and yet they're given the authority of God to do that? And God goes, whoa, 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 whoa. you got issues here we need to deal with. Now listen, listen closely. Scripture makes clear some things are sin, and you could decide for yourself whether that sin is you, but it isn't judging you to say that thing is wrong. If you choose to walk into a life of sin, you are choosing something wrong. So don't play the game. Don't be judging me. Because in the end of it all, if Scripture stands against what you're doing, then Scripture judges that action. You have to stand before God with that. And here Jesus is saying, listen, you need to be issuing life where you can. And part of that, by the way, is giving a healthy diagnosis that this is wrong. But in that, there's always a way to life, and that's Jesus Christ. I mean, this is God in the flesh, and they're looking at it. And by the way, to this day, there are people that say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Funny, he didn't have a problem here with it. In this text, beloved, 
In the simplest sense of it all, God takes very careful responsibility of things. And he says, you're going to be accountable for everything. Listen, listen, you've been given. And you've, but you've been given, you've been given on loan. Jesus gives a parable in Matthew 25 about men that are issued talents. And some of them, by the way, they're, they are the possession of the masters, but the master has given them to you and says, look at, I've given you these things. These are yours. These are yours. He doesn't say, I gave them to him and he can share them with a bunch of people and they can decide, they can pool their resources. He says, these are yours, Shirley. These are yours, Diane. These are yours, Allie. These are yours, Jenny. These are yours, Ashley. I'm lending them to you. And there's a day you're going to cash in this body and you're going to give them all back. It's interesting because no matter how risky the market is that anyone invested in, God never criticized the fact that they put him out there. The only person he has a problem with is the one that hid it, listen, hid it in the world. That's what they did. They said, you know what, I just, I just didn't want to do anything wrong, so I just decided to bury it in the world. And he says, look, you're going to be accountable. What this text tells us is whatever it is that you've been given, you're accountable for it. You could say, well, it was stolen. Look at, can I just tell you the truth? Jesus says, when I'm raised again, I will give you a joy. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he says, I will give you a joy no one can take. No one can take. So don't you lie to me or yourself and tell me how the devil took your joy. Because he didn't. He can't. Oh, you can trade it. He could say, want this? Shiny. This is called happiness. Give me your joy. You could go, okay. <laughs> the devil took my joy. No, he didn't. Jesus makes clear better than that. How do I get it back? Here's the great part. That's where the devil gets ripped off because it says in your presence is the fullness of joy. So I just go, Lord, I want to confess my sin to you. I want to get right with you. And then I just want to walk with you. And then the enemy goes, ah, I got nothing. Bam. Last text. Oh, I just love how good our God is. And he's going to hand these things. Think He's going to hand these things to the judge and go, no, you guys are going to judge from this. Finally, we're to the last area, and the area is the area of the needy. Verse 16 to the end. If a man entices a virgin who is betrothed, who is not betrothed, and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price to her, be his wife. Remember, that's the price that we've talked about earlier. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money, for the, according to the bride price of virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. By the way, God does not play games with witchcraft. He doesn't call it entertainment. He doesn't think it's cute. God actually says, look at good witch, bad witch, sandwich, they're dead witch. That's what they are. <laughs> Whoever lies with an animal should surely be put to death. Do you, the fact that God has to put this in here. The part of you think, that's just gross. Yeah, but you know what? They left a place that that was practiced, and they were going into a place, by the way, where that was practiced as well. And can I just say it in a simple sense? Listen, and we'll develop this in a second to close this up. What the world around you defines as proper sexuality does not mean it's what God agrees with. And in the end of it all, God's going to win. You're going to stand before God's rules, not the world's. And you could say, well, the world says that this is acceptable and the world says that this is acceptable. Well, in those days, so the world says it was acceptable for you to get out, put on a little Kenny G and get on with a goat. And the reason I say that is, and I'm not trying to be gross, the bottom line is, is that that was acceptable in those days. And God says, I never said it was. Did I ever say this was a democracy? Because men, is e men are evil. We're bent on our own destruction. So it's like, so what? Is rape okay? 
You go, well, but they love each other. Well, not in a rape case, sure. Well, what about a little boy and an old man? Well, that's sick. Well, who's you, who are you to decide what's sick? God has let laws. And there are certain places where that's acceptable. But never with God. So he has to tell you, stay away from sheepy. Okay, there you go. He who sacrifices to any other God except for the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him because you were strangers once in Egypt. Do you remember that? Do you remember? It was only, by the way, three months ago that you were delivered. Three months. So don't miss that. You shall not afflict a widow or a fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, (coughs) excuse me, and they cry at all to me, I'll surely hear their cry. My wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will be widows, and your children will be fatherless. Don't play with me on this one, is what God's saying. I take this very seriously. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, don't be like the money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Wow, could you imagine that? If you overtake your neighbor's garment as a pledge, return it to him before the sun goes down. For it's his only covering. It's his garment for his skin. What is he going to sleep in? In those days, by the way, your, your muumu that you wore, your coat, that was your night, that was what you actually used as your blanket. No, I'll be honest. I wore this on purpose today. This is the closest thing I have. I could sleep in this. This is so unbelievably comfortable. But it's not long enough. It's like, look, do you realize what you're taking? This is well, what will he sleep in? It will be that when he cries to me, I will hear because I'm gracious. You will not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You will not delay in offering the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your ox and your sheep. It shall be some other seven days. On the eighth day, you will give it to me. And you shall be holy men to me. That's his conclusion of this. You shall not eat what meat that is torn by beasts in the field. And if you kind of go, ooh, roadkill grill. She'll throw it to the dogs. So listen, to sum that up, and we're bringing this around to close. Virgins, treat them with honor. Marry them. Now listen, look back at that verse. It says, if a man entices a virgin. It does not say, if a man steals a virgin. Because kidnapping, we're already aware of, is a capital offense. So we're already there with that. That's simple. You try to steal a girl away and she said no, the judges say, you're done. End the case. Grab the stones. On the other side of it, it says, listen, men. By the way, did you find in this that he holds the man responsible? He says, if he entices a girl, a a girl here, well, shouldn't she be responsible? I mean, after all, she was enticed. That means after she was like, but I love him. Interesting, men, for what it's worth, God holds you responsible. He holds me responsible. And this is what he says. You have, to pray the play, you have to pay the bride price, whether the father says you can have her or not. So back to the situation with Blasman. She's been enticed by Mr. Sugar. He tries to steal away with her. Mom looks and she says, this is the price. And he says, oh, great. And he gives it to her. And he goes, so can I have her? And she says, no. <laughs> I have my daughter. 
And I have the bride price now. Because God takes that very seriously. Men, which one of you, if you're honest, would have to sell your kidneys right now because of the bride prices you would have had to pay in the past for the people you've sought to entice? And we wonder how kind it is when actually she looked and didn't dig your chili. And in the end of it all, God's very serious about this. Very serious. Because in the list of the things he has here, it's the virgin in verse 16, it's the stranger in verse 21, it's the widow and the fatherless in verse 22, and it's the poor in verse 25. God lumps this group of people together as people that could be potentially vulnerable. And remember how in the past, when he's already talked about judges, he makes really clear, I want you to be issuers of life. So look at, we're, and he says in the end of it all, I want you holy. I want you holy in behavior. I want you to honor the virgin. Brothers, honor your sisters. Treat well the stranger. Care for the widow. Take care of the fatherless. Lend to the poor out of kindness, not out of opportunity. Respect God and his rulers and offer to God your first. And in your heart, remove all hints of witchcraft. Don't allow the world to define your sexuality and have one God in your camp. That's what God says in this. Let me close with this concept and then we'll go to prayer. On the, in the end of it all, basically of two groups of people, when we list through this, and we've gone through two chapters, can you believe that? Some of you are kind of mind-numbed. I am aware of that. I recognize this is a very technical text. This isn't like a narrative where people are doing stuff and we can develop that. This is simple. We're laying out the, the judgments here. But there are a group of people that have come to take. They're thieves. They've come to steal, of which they'll have to give back. They're kidnappers for which they would be killed. They've come to take in regards to physical force for which then they will have to pay restitution for. They've come to take honor from the virgin. They've come to take interest from the poor. To be honest, that's every one of us if we're not careful before Christ. Because in the end of it all, there is a hole in us that God created for him that nothing else is going to fill. And the harder we try to fill with anything else, the more we will suck from everyone and everything else around us to try to get there. And what happens is, the problem is, I'm a sucker, you're a sucker. And we're both with straws. So we meet each other. Hi, how are you doing? She's like, well, I'm doing really good. We're kind of sizing up what's left to suck. You're nice, you might have money, you might have a car, you might be popular, I might look good standing next to you, you look, what, what do you got? People are kind of weighing you out with their straw, let's see, where do I put it next? And let's be honest, without Jesus Christ, without Jesus Christ, listen, as Lord, you're going to be a sucker. And it doesn't matter if you're poor. You'll, I mean, I've been on crusades where guys have gone out and, pan, and handed the bucket around four or five times to groups of people that are actually digging up roots in Africa to eat. I'm thinking, how are you sucking from these people? Well, gas has, petrol has to be put in that private jet. Now understand, I'm not party to those groups. But the Lord never wants me to go us and them. I always look and go, what part of that's me? Is there a part of me in that? Because I don't want to be that. But it, you know, sometimes it's just subtle. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm lonely. Fulfill me. Hi, nice to meet you. Make me feel important. Give me a purpose. 
Make me feel valuable. But what happens when two people meet each other and they're too busy trying to, make the, trying to get importance from the other one? That's two people sucking out of straws into the other, church, the other person's glasses. The only one that's going to win is the one that sucks the hardest. So can I just say, in, in, out of the love of Jesus, without Jesus, you suck. <laughs> but, you, it's because you're thirsty. And Jesus stood up and said, if you do thirst, come to me. Not to Pastor Tony, to Jesus. And Jesus didn't just say, and I'll give you, I'll fill your glass. He said, I will make you a fountain of living water. So all the suckers around you will get glutted, waterlogged, and you won't even run out. See, Jesus knows that we're suckers. He knows that. And he knows the reason is, is because we live in a desert right now, spiritually. And God so desperately wants to put fountains right in the middle of it. You. When I came to Jesus Christ, that hole got filled and that hole overflowed. And when that hole overflowed with life and love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, I realized, well, I don't even recognize the person I'm becoming because I'm so different. But even today, I could wake up and try to shirk the lordship of Jesus. And you know what happens when that happens? I could become a Christian sucker. Well, that's even worse. Because then people are like, see, they're just like everyone else. Without the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if I don't go to Him for my fulfillment, I will always be there. Literally, it says, whoever is in me, whoever comes to me, and the idea of it is comes to me and keeps coming to me, always comes to me. It isn't like, I came to Jesus once, that's enough, I'm filled. It's like, yeah, that's good luck. You have a lovely fountain. You hooked it up to the hose. Everything worked out really great. And he says, well, I hooked it up once. Well, why isn't it running anymore? Because you ain't hooked up anymore. And maybe that's where you're at today. You remember what it's like to overflow. But you're not now. Maybe you're kind of a little bit, you're kind of like a little bit of the hose there, but I really kind of want a little bit of the hose in the world. And Well, that's the desert. So you kind of mix and dry sand in with the overflow of the water. What does that do? Beloved, listen. First of all, it starts with this. If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, who, considering inequality with God, was not robbery, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bond servant, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And he took that because of my sin and your sin. But the death isn't the end of it. It's the beginning. Because then three days later, he rose again. And he says, I'd like to give you a new life, that life that overflows now. Have you said yes to that? Are you still trying to suck from the bottle of death? Because today I'm here to let you know you could say yes to Jesus and be set free. But if you have said yes to Jesus today, in the midst of all of these laws that we've, took it, we've taken a look at today, which will help those judges and even help us in our own standards for living, can I just say, listen, I'm guilty of thievery before God, but I owe my life. And I've been redeemed. And I've been redeemed completely. And I belong to Him. And I have chosen for the rest of my life, it says, forever to be His servant. Not to be His boss. But to be His servant. And I'm so glad to be that.
But I can tell you that that can only happen if I stay hooked up. And today I'm challenging you. Are you dry? Are you running on fumes? Well, there's a problem because my Lord never runs empty. He doesn't even wane. So as we get ready now for communion, I'm going to ask us to stand and I'm going to pray. And then we're going to serve the elements. But first, I'm going to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And then, as we get to the Lord's table today and partake of those things as we can get ready to conclude this service, oh, beloved, today let us walk out of here overflowing. Stand with me, would you please, and let's pray. Lord, I thank you for how we could see you in every one of these judgments. How we could see you as the bondservant. How we can see you as the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity. And yet, the price that was paid for you was the price of a gored slave. And the price that was paid for us was the price of God's only begotten Son. And here I am trying to find importance, value. When I'm the apple of your eye, I'm the precious jewel in the field to you. The joy that was set before you for which you endured the cross, scorning its shame. Oh God, today I pray for every believer in here, God, that we would see how utterly precious we are before you. And I thank you, Lord, for the sheer magnificence and beauty of your love. And right now, if there be any or many who have yet to say yes, you're not sure if you have or you're sure you haven't said yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But today you know that the gift is offered you. God is not asking you to climb to the top of the hill. He is instead challenging you to stay at the bottom of the hill where the altar is because God has come down to redeem you. The price was paid. You were a bride sold to one who hated you. But you have the opportunity to be set free today. And if that's you, I just want to pray this prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree, I ask right now for you to say at the end, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let these words be my words. Let this prayer be my prayer. And this is it. God, I come to you broken. I come to you needy, I come to you empty, I come to you, God, in need. I come to you guilty in my own sin, but you love me and you want me. And You've not asked for me to earn your love. How do I earn love? You've asked for me to receive it. The price has been paid. And now the choice is mine and I say yes. Jesus, I do believe you died for my sins on the cross. And you rose again on the third day just like your scripture promised. That I could have a new life. A life where my life is more than just complete but overflowing. And I need that and I need you. So Jesus, if that means that that's for you to be my ransom has been said here, my redeemer has been said here, and my Lord, well then I say yes. 
Of all the masters I could choose, I choose you. And I surrender myself to you and ask for you now to take my life and make it meaningful. Have me now, I pray. I know you want me. So now I say yes. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say right now, Amen.